Okay, um, when you're talking about the atonement, the first thing you have to talk about with people is the idea of God. The atonement means absolutely nothing unless man has a relationship with God or, ha or is supposed to have a relationship with God. So when we talk about the issue of God, there are two major possibilities, aren't there? Either God is or God is not. That's the first issue. We're going to talk a little bit about the idea that God is not. The idea that God is not. When people make this statement, there is no God, first of all, you have to understand that they're making, they're making what could be called a philosophically negative statement. There is no God. A philosophically positive statement would be, there is a God. And that is the claim that we as Christians make. There is a God. But a philosophically negative statement, there is no God, cannot be proved according to the way that most people prove things these days. The idea, have you ever had somebody talk with you from the standpoint that something can only be proved if you can see it or taste it or touch it or feel it? It has to be subject to the five senses in order to be proved to be true. Well, that is a concept called empiricism. We talk about having to have empirical data or empirical evidence or proof. It means that you have to have some kind of proof that you know you can see it, taste it, touch it, feel it. it. Has to be subject to the five senses. Well, of course, empiricism is a real problem, and even the guy that that postulated empiricism, strict empiricism, said that it was a dead alley or a blind alley because you can't even. Um, first of all, your thoughts are not subject to that. You can't touch a thought, taste it, feel it. How long is it? What does it weigh? Um, you know, what color is it? What does it taste like? Thoughts. We know that we have thoughts, and yet uh, you can't prove that with the concept of empiricism. Or the concept of empiricism is not subject to empiricism. You see? So you can't even prove that empiricism is true using empiricism. And so, but most people these days are reacting or they're asking for evidence on the basis of empiricism. They're saying, it's very, they don't usually know what they're, what they're doing, but they say, well, can you taste him? Can you touch him? Can you see him? I was walking out of a pizza parlor one time, and I was talking with, this is in Germany, and I was talking with somebody in English, uh, walking out, and somebody who knew English was sitting at a table, and they heard me talking about God. And this guy said, God? Can you see God? Can you touch God? Can you taste God? And I said, um, well, I said, you should understand that, in, that even Ayers, who postulated empiricism, understood that empiricism was a blind alley. And I, I knew, I could see on the look in his face, it drew a complete blank. He didn't know what I was talking about. So I had to get a little bit simpler. And that happens a lot of times. That because of, because of our, in, because of, how can I say this? Because Christians have a tendency to deal more in those areas than other people, they use them as excuses, and we have to learn how to, uh, how to shoot them down. We're usually ahead of them as far as their thinking is concerned. So you have to tell them what they're involved in. Okay? So anyway, uh, I said, well, look, can you, can you see a thought? Can you taste a thought? How long is it? How much does it weigh? And yet you know that you have thoughts. Okay? But you can't prove with your five senses that you have thoughts. You can't prove that to me. Okay? So he began to get the idea. So you, there are lots of things we take for granted that we have no empirical evidence for. It's a philosophically negative statement. And any philosophically negative statement requires the presence of all evidence to prove that it's true. 
I'll take it the other way around. If you make a positive statement, there is a God, you only have to offer some evidence to show that it's true. If you can offer evidence that shows that there is a God in some way, by his uh, intervention in history, uh, there's some kind of archaeological evidence, some kind of rational evidence, some kind of historical evidence, that God, a supernatural being, has somehow intervened in history, then when you show that, you can show or prove that there is a God. Okay? Now, technically, technically, you can never prove that there is a God until you've postulated it. You have, to, you have to assume that there's a God first, because the evidence would never become evidence. But we won't go into that. That's part of my apologetic series. That's not part of this series. Okay? But when you say there is a God, you only have to offer some evidence to show that it's true. When you say there is no God, you have to offer all of the evidence that exists in the universe. Because anything that you, any one thing that you do not know as a human being might be God. Any place that you have not been in the universe, God might be there. Any experience that you have not had might be God. And so you, as a finite being, can never empirically prove, we still there? I stepped on the cord. Never, we can never empirically prove that there is no God because you have to offer all of the evidence that there is in the universe to be able to prove it empirically. You get the difference? Positive statements, you only have to offer some evidence. Negative statements, you have to offer all of the evidence that there is in the universe. So, you see, when a person says, there are no absolutes, there's no way that that can be proved. There are no absolutes. When you say there are absolutes, you only have to have some evidence that there are absolutes. When you say there are no absolutes, you have to offer all the evidence that there is in the universe because any place where you have not been, an absolute might be there. Anything that you have not experienced might be an absolute. Any one thing that you do not know as a human being might be an absolute thing. You understand? Okay, so empirically, empirically, you can never prove that there is no God or that there are no absolutes or that everything is relative, which is a negative statement actually even though it sounds positive. Okay, everything is relative is the same as there are no absolutes. But it's also an absolute statement, just like there are no absolutes. <laughs> Those are both absolute statements, right? There are no absolutes. There are how many absolutes? No absolutes. So the absolute statement. And, and everything is relative. How much is relative? Absolutely everything is relative. I asked a guy that one time. I said, absolutely everything is relative? And he said, well... <laughs> Maybe there are some things that aren't, that aren't relative. I mean, I said, yeah, I said, you mean there might be some things that are absolute? And he said, yeah. I said, well, let's talk about those. Okay? Okay, so a philosophically negative statement requires the presence of all evidence to prove it. But there's a problem. And that is that the human being and the human mind is finite. And so the human being cannot offer all of the evidence in the universe. See? So the human mind and the human being cannot, cannot provide the evidence that is necessary to prove that there is no God. So the statement, there is no God, can never be proved empirically. Another idea that, that uh, people who believe that there is no God, which commonly call them atheists, technically they can't be atheists, they can only be agnostics, we'll see that in a little while, but um, when, because, because they can't prove it. So since they can't prove it, then they can't be atheists, right? They can only say, I don't know. And once they say, I don't know, they're thrown into the realm, of, uh, the realm of empirical evidence historically. Then they're in your territory. And then what you need to do is give them the evidence and show them that there's a God. But anyway, we'll get to that. 
But what, what atheists, what atheists will, now just listen, what atheists will commonly do is they'll say, well, Christians are just involved in wish fulfillment. They just hope that there is some kind of a God, as is described in the Bible. Um, there's a nice, big, loving father who's in the, the skies, you know, just an ex- all it is, they think, is that it's an ex- extension of your father image out into the infinite, you see, uh, rather than the other way around, rather than our understanding of fathers comes from him. Um, so they think we're involved in wish fulfillment. You just hope. It's a big psychological crutch. Maybe you've heard that one. It's a big psychological crutch that you're depending on. Well, you know, wish fulfillment is a two-edged sword. Cuts both directions, as far as God is concerned. Because it may be not, not so much that we're hoping that there's this nice, loving, kind, compassionate God, but it may be that the atheist is hoping that there isn't any God, such as is revealed in the Bible. A God who will bring us into judgment for every deed and every word. A God who will have to exclude us from his presence for eternity, for our sin and rebellion against him and against other people. You see? So the wish fulfillment thing cuts both directions. Works against the atheist, too, because maybe he's wishing that there isn't any God, such as is revealed in the Bible. Now, let me ask you. They say that we are hoping that there is a God, such as the God of the Bible. How many of us, as sinners, would hope that there is such a God as the God of the Bible, who is holy and is going to judge every thought, every word, every deed? You see? As if we were perfect people, we might hope for a God like that. But since we're sinners, you wouldn't construct a God like that who's going to send you to hell, would you? See? You wouldn't think up or wish for a God that's like that. And so when they say that all we're doing is using a psychological crutch, they say, well, it's a pretty good crutch, if you ask me. It's a lot better than the thing that they're depending on. See? But anyway, um, the wish fulfillment idea cuts both directions. They may be wishing that there is no such God as the God of the Bible. Have you ever considered the idea of the holy? That is, that God is holy. The whole idea of holiness, actually, as a sinful being, frightens us. I don't know if you've had, maybe you've had these kind of times where in worship or in in a private time of prayer, uh, God has revealed his holiness to you. And God has done that to me. And I had the same reaction as people did in the Bible when God revealed their holiness, his holiness. You see, it's you, you get reactions like, woe is me, I'm undone. You see, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. You get that kind of reaction. You don't get the idea that you want to be associated with that God. You want God to leave you alone, you see, because he's holy and you aren't. And so which of us would hope for a God like that that would cause terror in our hearts because we're sinful? We wouldn't hope for something like that. But the, the point is that that is the way God is. That is the way God has revealed himself to be. And so like it or not, that's the way God is. And we simply have to get in line with the program or forget it. That's all we can do is conform. Now, God also is the loving, kind, compassionate father that the Bible speaks of him to be. He's also that way. But we have to accept the other side, too. Or as C.S. Lewis said, he said, there are many things revealed in the Bible that I don't happen to like personally. He said, but that's not up to me. That's a matter of revelation. And however reality is, I need to accept it that way because that's the way God says it is. C.S. Lewis said, I don't like the, the idea of hell, personally. I don't like the idea of people sep- being separated from God for eternity. And I could add a little note here, neither does God, C.S. Lewis. Because um, he didn't want anybody to be separated from him. But he said, I don't like the idea of people being separated from God for eternity. But that's the way it is. 
And so I simply have to accept it because that's reality. That's the way it is. Okay? And so maybe you've felt that way sometimes. People separated from God for eternity? Yes. It's the way it is. The only the problem with that is is we don't understand how significant our choices are. That's the problem. We don't understand how significant our choices are until God gives us a revelation of what we're doing with our choices. And as beings made a little less than God, how, how significant those choices really are. Such as in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, if you say to your brother, you fool, you deserve to go to hell. You're guilty enough to go to hell. You see? What does that tell us? Does that tell us God is vindictive and angry and, and full of vengeance? No. It just tells us that our choices are so significant we don't really understand how significant they are. That if we say to our brother, you fool, we deserve to go to hell. Okay, now let's go on. So, no scientific evidence can ever be offered to prove that there is no God. Sci scientific process starts with what? What's the first step in scientific process? Huh? Nope. Nope. Observation. Right. You have to observe something first. You can't start making assumptions, postulates, or anything. Scientific process starts with observation. First, you must see some kind of an event take place, some kind of phenomenon take place. Okay? So, when you're talking about evidence to prove that there is no God, when you say, there is no God, what kind of observation can you make of the non-existence of a thing? You cannot make an observation of the non-existence of a thing, can you? So when you say there is no God, it's totally outside of the realm of science. It's strictly a philosophical statement. We won't get into evolution right away. I hope I don't get into off into evolution at all, but because um, I'm not teaching on that this week. But in, in evolution, you have the same problem. Evolution is basically a philosophical thing. It's not a scientific thing. Because they, they know that they cannot observe evolution taking place. It either takes place so slowly, which was the idea that they held for a long, long time, many, many decades, that evolution takes place so slowly that it cannot be observed, which is what? Outside of the realm of scientific process. So that's not science. It's just a postulate. And then now what they've done is they, they've constructed what's called punctuated equilibrium, unless you, in case you've never heard that, punctuated equilibrium, which is the idea that things develop very slowly and they're very consistent for a long period of time, and then suddenly, for some reason, there'll be a, a change from one species from one species to the next. Right? And so then what they're saying is evolution happens so quickly that it's outside of the realm of observation. So what have they said? It's outside of the realm of observation by being so slow that you can't observe it or by being so fast that we can't observe it. You see? And so they've put it outside of the realm of science altogether. And it is simply a postulate. I asked a zoologist one time, a zoologist and entomologist from England, what do you think about evolution? And she said, if you were thinking he, you're a male chauvinist pig. And, uh, <laughs> and she said, she said, it is a postulate that I personally um, do not assume. She had said it had nothing to do with science. She said, it's a postulate that I personally do not assume. Okay, um, <laughs> excuse me for my little intrusion in people's lives there. Um, so no scientific evidence can ever be offered to prove that there is no God. 
So the only thing that's tenable philosophically, the only thing that you can have as a scientific idea, or not, not scientific, but philosophical idea, is agnosticism. The idea that you don't know whether or not there's a God. The person cannot say, there is no God, because they can never prove that. They have to say, I don't know whether or not there is a God. And then once they've said that, once they've said that, it throws it into the realm of history and historical evidence as to whether or not there may be a God. Then the person is thrown into your territory as a Christian. You make the statement, there is a God. There is a God. And then you can start offering historical evidence for the existence of God by showing God's intrusion into history as a supernatural being intruding into the natural realm that he has made. And so then that means you have to do your homework and you have to be ready with the evidence to show the person when, they've, when you've made, taken them from being an atheist and made an agnostic out of them, then it's your responsibility <laughs> to show them that there is a God because then they're in your realm and you have to prove your statement. Your statement can be proved. So, see, they don't have to do any homework because they can never do, they can never do enough homework to prove it. You have to do enough homework to be able to show them that there is a God. And so you better have some evidence in your head to be able to speak to them about why you know, why you know that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Can you show somebody historically, apart from the Bible, why Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? We've got lots of evidence apart from the Bible that Jesus was raised from the dead. The question is, do you know it? And can you present it to people? Okay, so do your homework, folks. You do your homework. So we're going to leave the idea that... Um, we're going to leave the idea that uh, God is not. We're going to go on to the idea that God is. And look at the possi different possible kinds of gods that you could have. There are basically eight different kinds of possible gods that you can have. And all eight of these have been worshipped at some time or another. And we'll see that as we go. Either God is or God is not. But we're going to talk about God is. If God is, there are two major categories of kinds of gods that there could be. There can be a dependent god. Is this big enough for people in the back to see? Okay. A dependent god or a non-dependent god. Two different kinds of gods that you could have. Okay. And then we'll see that that breaks down into further categories until eventually you have eight different kinds of gods. You can have a dependent God or you can have a non-dependent God. Dependent means that it's dependent upon something else for its existence. You could also use the word contingent and non-contingent if you want to, such as it is contingent on whether or not I have money as to whether or not I can buy something at the store. Right? Dependent. It depends upon. It can be dependent, non-dependent, contingent, non-contingent. You can use, if you're very careful, you can use the words finite and infinite, but you have to be very careful with the word infinite. I'll show you why. When we go to the Bible and we're looking at the Bible, we have to be really careful the way we read the Bible because God expects us to understand what he is like by reading the Bible. The Bible is a revelation of God, of his character and his works to us. Right. But problem is, the problem is that very often what happens is people go to the Bible after 
they have figured out with their own finite human minds what God is like, and then they go to the Bible to try to show that that is what he is like. And they end up distorting and twisting the scripture because they have taken a humanist um, stance, constructed humanist stance starting with the finite mind of man rather than the revelation of God. They take a humanist stance, construct an idea of the character of God, and then go to the Bible to try to find it. It looks something like this. Here's the character of God. They construct that, 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 they construct that with their mind. They go to the Bible to try to find that character of God in the Bible. Whereas God intends us to do this, to see it this way. You go to the Bible to find out what the character of God is like because that is where the, the character of God is revealed, is in the scripture. And the reason that God gave us a revelation was because we couldn't figure out with our own finite minds what he's like. See, with our own finite minds, we can't even prove that there is a God, much less figure out what kind of God he would be. So he gave us a revelation of what he's like. But you see, many people, now I'm going to relate this to the word infinite. What happens is many people start with the idea that God is infinite. They construct out of that word, infinite, an idea of the character of God or the nature of God. And then they go to the Bible to try to show that that is true. And that's the wrong way to go about it. So people can use the word infinite to encourage themselves to think of God in a certain way, and that way that way that they think may or may not be biblical. It may be, by chance, biblical, but it may not be biblical. And so the problem is people can construct a character of God that is not according to the Bible, it's not according to the truth, by using the word infinite. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If by using, this is from page 89 in his book, Miracles. If by using the word infinite, we encourage ourselves to think of him, God, as a formless nothing about whom everything in general and nothing in particular is true, then it would be better to drop that word altogether. Do you understand? The point is, I'll quote it again for you, but the point is, is that if your word infinite means everything, it means nothing because it doesn't have a definition. A word that does not have a definition isn't worth anything. Say, Or as Alice in Wonderland said to was it the cat she was talking to? It wasn't, was it the cat? Or was it, which creature was it she was talking to when she said, it seems to me you can't do that kind of thing with words. When it, huh? Was it? Yeah. That the, the one creature, whoever it was, was making words mean anything that it wanted them to mean. And she said, it seems to me you can't do that kind of thing with words. And it's true. You can't do that kind of thing with words if you're going to communicate with people. See, if a word could mean anything. Okay, let me, quote, let me quote the quote again. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, If by using the word infinite, we encourage ourselves to think of him, God, as a formless nothing, about whom everything in general and nothing in particular is true, it would be better to drop that word altogether. In other words, if you use the word infinite, and by doing that, you've got so big a definition, or so limited a definition, that it means nothing, then the word infinite isn't useful to you, because it doesn't mean anything. See? But a lot of people will say, God is infinite. And then they start making all these statements about God right out of their own human minds instead of saying what the Bible says about God. So if you use the word infinite, you have to define it according to what the Bible says, not according to what you think God is like. You understand? God will not, the, the nature of God will not bend itself to be whatever you think he's like. 
That's not, that's not reality. It's not truth. Okay? I think as we go along, you'll begin to see some areas where you may have been told God was infinite where the, and you've got an idea about God that isn't biblical. Because somebody said, God is infinite. And they've defined God according to the word infinite rather than the Bible. And then you've been taught that. Say, Can I give you one example real quickly? What does the word omnipresence mean? Which is also not a biblical word. Where, where is God? Okay, that's a common teaching. God is everywhere, right? Now, if God is everywhere, how, well, how can the Bible say God went up from the place that he spoke with Abraham? I will go down now and see if they've done everything I've heard they do, they've done. Let us go down and there confound their languages. Hell is everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord. God is everywhere. What does that mean? So you've been given an idea based on the word infinite. You've defined the word omnipresence, which is also not a biblical word. And you've been given an unbiblical idea about where God is. Rather than letting your minds be governed by what the word of God says. Okay. We're going to find out a few things like that about God as we go. So where is God? You need to read the Bible through and list every place where it talks about God's presence and find out where God is. Because you've been told some things that aren't true about God's presence. Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. All three of them, unbiblical words. And you need, if you're going to use them, it's not wrong to use them, but if you're going to use them, then you need to have a biblical definition for them. Right? Any word you use about God has to have a biblical definition. Otherwise, where did you get it? Out of your own head? Out of some other human being's head? question is then, can it be trusted? Okay, so you've got this kind of a problem. Right? So if you use the word infinite, be very, very careful. Okay? So you can't use it. I'm not saying you can't use it. Be very careful. So you know what I mean by the word infinite, do you? We'll get into that in a little while. Okay. And under this, you've got two different categories. God could not only be dependent and non-dependent, God also might be material or immaterial. Got that? God might be material or immaterial. God might be material substance or God might be an immaterial substance. Something which is immaterial is also a substance. It's simply different, a different kind of substance. Spirit is something that is different, but it doesn't mean that spirit is a nothing. <laughs> we sometimes get the idea that spirit is sort of a gas, you know, it's sort of a nothing. Whereas spirit is every bit as real as material. It's simply different. It's a different kind of substance. And whether or not there are other forms of substance besides material and spiritual, I don't know. God could have made all kinds of things besides himself. But God is spirit, you see. So you've got material and immaterial, material and immaterial. So now you have four different categories. You've got dependent material, dependent immaterial, non-dependent material, and non-dependent immaterial. You've got four different kinds of gods there. Now we're going to divide it down even further. You see there are eight different kinds of gods. And it goes like this. And you can have something that is impersonal or personal. Impersonal or personal. Now, see, so you've got eight different kinds of gods here. 
A dependent material impersonal God, a dependent material personal God, a dependent immaterial impersonal God, a dependent immaterial personal God, a non-dependent material impersonal God, a non-dependent material personal God, a non-dependent immaterial impersonal God, or a non-dependent immaterial personal God. And would you believe all eight kinds of gods have been worshipped at some time or another or are now being worshipped? Probably all of them somewhere around the world at this point. Now let's think about these different kinds of gods. A dependent, if you want to think of it as finite, that's okay, limited, okay, dependent, material, what, what would that be like? Yes, I'm going to go through every one. We're going to, we are going to think about every one of these <laughs> as to what kind of God it is. Because you can, you can think of examples of every one of these kinds of God. You didn't know that, but you can. Okay? Dependent, material, but impersonal. Can you think of something like that? A car, yes. Well, generalize that. People worship possessions, materialism, money. Okay? Money can be people's God. Materialism, or something else that's worshipped like that. Very common. Talked about all the time in the Bible. A food, food can be a God, says their, their God is their belly, yeah. Okay. Food can be a God to people. Idols, yes, idol worship or idolatry. Very common. Right? Materialism, idolatry. People worship things of wood and stone and gold. And... Okay. Okay, now how about a dependent, material, personal God? Now, by personal, I mean that which has intellect, emotions, and will. Can you name one that's dependent, material, and personal? Huh? A guru? Anything else? A guru is a teacher in Eastern religions, like the guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi or something like that. Huh? No, that wouldn't be personal because it doesn't have intellect, emotions, and will. That would be impersonal. A rock star, yes? A husband or wife can be in the place of God? An animal? No, that's... Uh, that would be, I'd be over here. The pantheism, pantheism comes over here. Well, but particularly in reference to animals, actually, pantheism fits right there. But, huh? Yeah. See, something that's impersonal. That's see, th these are non-living, but you could worship snakes um, or whatever, and that would that would fit in this category too. That wouldn't be in here because it's not personal. Personal is alive. You can have an immaterial thing that is that is also, um, excuse me, an impersonal thing that is also alive. But anyway, let's look. There's a couple more examples here that you can give. A king or an emperor. See, Caesar was to be worshipped as God, and that's why the early Christians were killed, not because they believed in Jesus, because they could. There were all kinds of gods that people worshipped in, and so Jesus was another god. The reason they were killed was because they believed he was the only one and they wouldn't worship Caesar. That was why they were killed. It was a political thing. Hmm? Them worshiping yourself? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you could worship yourself. You could set up yourself as God. Um, another one would be uh, Lenin. 
although now it would be in the it would be in the immaterial uh, realm because he's dead. Uh, somebody like that, an emperor or somebody like Lenin or whatever, could be worshipped at the time as if he were God. Okay, <clears throat> let's go on to the dependent. Immaterial. Now, this is a non-material or immaterial thing. And an impersonal thing. A philosophy could, be, could become your God, yes? That would be dependent and immaterial. Anything else? This is a little tricky. Those of you who know anything about uh, ancient literature, come up with something like that. It's a very common example, but you have to know a little bit about Greek philosophy and theater. Immaterial, impersonal. Uh, yeah, it'd be a toss-up between whether it's material or, or immaterial. Um, the the ancient philosophy would have made it a finite God that was behind. So that, it could have been a personal thing, you see. That was behind the stars. Whereas now, it's viewed as a scientific thing, which in essence makes it an immaterial, impersonal thing. So it could be a toss-up between those two. It could even be material if you're talking about the actual stars themselves exerting some kind of a physical influence. No, that's personal. Over here is the other aspect of that, and that is you had you had a, a dual thing between the Greek gods and the the fates. <laughs> I don't know if you know about that, but yes, but they were. You could never tell whether those. It had to do with chance, actually, and you could never tell whether they were behind the gods or the gods were behind them. You say that's the problem. That was the problem with them. You could never tell who was behind what. Okay, and so this ended up actually being an impersonal thing because it was more like chance. It had the idea of chance to it. You could put that down there if you want. Some people might put that under the non-dependent aspect. <clears throat> so you've got the, the uh, a philosophy. You could put that down there if you want. That was a good example. Yeah, human philosophies because they're constructed by the dependent, the human being. Okay, let's take a dependent. Whoop. Dependent, immaterial, personal. A little easier. Okay, the Greek gods. Anything else? Ancestor worship, yes. In Japan, very common. That's a dependent, immaterial, because it's a spirit. Personal, as intellect, emotions, and will. Ancestor worship. Very common, though, very commonly worshipped all around the world. We talked about last night. Demons. Demons, or Satan. That's where Satan worship fits in, you see. Dependent, immaterial, personal. Of course, now he wants us to think that he is not dependent. He wants us to think that he has the attributes of God. He said, I will be like the Most High. And if you have any doctrines in your head, I'm going to start meddling here with your, with your head. <laughs> if you have, and with YWAM, <laughs> and I feel like I can do it after 10 years in YWAM. Um, if you start 
if you start, have any ideas in your head that give the enemy the attributes of God, they are wrong because he does not have the attributes of God. He is not God. He is a created being. In the book of Job, you see that in the first two chapters very clearly. God said, where have you come from? That he does not have the capacity to be everywhere like God has the capacity. I did not say God is everywhere. I said he has the capacity to be everywhere. Okay? He does not have the capacity to be everywhere. He said, I have come from walking to and fro in the earth. And I like the way Joy Dawson put it. He can't even hitchhike. <laughs> He's got to walk. See? From walking to and fro in the earth. And God said, have you considered my servant Job? Which means what? He doesn't have all knowledge. He has to he had to consider Job or not. Have you considered my servant Job? So he doesn't have he doesn't have the knowledge that God has. And then he, uh, Satan said, I can't touch him because you've put a hedge around him. Which means what? He doesn't have all power either because he couldn't touch Job because God wouldn't let him. Okay? Then he had to put God in a moral dilemma before he could get the opportunity or the even the permission to do so. Okay, so he's not omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. Trying to give some kind of biblical definition to those. He is not any of those, and yet, you know what we do in Youth of the Mission? We treat him as if he is in Youth of the Mission. We act as if a demon in Afghanistan can hear us here. Don't we? Ever talk to a demon in a foreign country when you're doing spiritual warfare? Gotcha. <laughs> ever, ever talk to a demon when you're doing spiritual warfare? What gives you the idea from the Bible that that demon can hear you? Have you not been attributing the attributes of God to the devil and demons? That they're everywhere. They can hear everything. They know what you're thinking. They see everything that you do. And what have you been doing? Treat, excuse me, I'm preaching. What have you been doing? You've been acting as if the devil is God and he loved it. Because that's exactly his intention. And I will leave you to work out exactly how you're going to do your spiritual warfare. <laughs> I believe exactly the same thing can be accomplished with, with, but without attributing any of the attributes of God to the enemy. And how? By talking with God. Because God can be here and in Afghanistan at the same time. So you talk to God about what's happening in Afghanistan. You don't speak to the enemy because he can't hear you. Anyway, I don't, I don't freak out if people start doing that because I believe God will interpret the person's prayer. Huh? Isn't that wonderful? No, it doesn't. It doesn't rule out spiritual warfare. If you've got a demon right in front of you, it's your responsibility to take care of it. But Jesus only dealt with one spiritual being at a distance, and he didn't do it by speaking to it the way he did with every other spiritual being. He said to the woman, according to your faith, and in one gospel it says, according to this word, the demon has gone out of your daughter. He didn't speak to the demon at a distance. Okay, I, I know it brought up lots of questions because you've been taught all kinds of things that are contrary to that, and we're not going to be able to handle those right now. So please write them down. And you can ask me later. It's bad for the tape because the tape will not pick you up. Okay? It's a question. Let's go on. <laughs> the devil and demons. Boy, I brought this out. It's, I brought this out in some places and people have gone, yeah! <laughs> okay. Remember, God can be here and there. If you want to do some, handle something at a distance, you've got to do it through God. If you're doing it through the devil, you're attributing the attributes of God to the devil. And he just loves that kind of thing because he said, I will be like the Most High. Okay, God is, God, is, uh, God could be, God could be dependent 
immaterial and personal. That was demons and Satan and things like that. Okay, now let's take the other side. A little bit harder to deal with because it's, um, although there's some good examples here. God could be non-dependent. You could use the word infinite if you are very, very careful, as we said before, not to go outside of the biblical definition of God. Okay? So God could be infinite or non-dependent material. Now, these two really don't go together to be non-dependent and material. That category really doesn't exist because of the laws of physics and the laws of thermodynamics. You can show that a material thing, as we know it now, cannot be non-dependent. You understand? A material thing must be a dependent thing because of the energy. Uh, the, uh, the amount of energy that's available to do work becomes less and less constantly. It's called the, the second law of thermodynamics or entropy. The entropy or the randomness in any system, any finite system, is constantly increasing. And so, since the energy is sort of going, it's not that the energy is going downhill, but the energy available for work in any system is going downhill all the time, means that anything that is, okay, anything that is material cannot be non-dependent. It must have had a beginning at some time. It must, there must have been a beginning to the running down of the order or the available energy, energy available for work. There must have been a running down, a beginning to the running down, because if you, if you postulate that it's always existed, then the question is, why hasn't it reached heat death yet? Why hasn't it heat death? That's the, the end of the whole running down process, which we're not in. There's nothing that's in heat death at the moment. Um, the end of the whole running down process, which is everything would be of one, uh, one nature, and it would all be, uh, there would be no energy available for any kind of work. You see, the thing is, everything right now is very highly complex. There's lots of energy available for work at this point. But the thing is, if it's been running down for all eternity, I'm in my, I'm in my apologetic series here. If it's been running down for all eternity, then it's had enough time to run down. No matter how big it is. Even if it's infinite, it's had enough time to run down. See? So if anything is material, that means that it couldn't be non-dependent. It couldn't, be, it couldn't have existed forever. Because things are running down. And if it's running down forever, it should have run down by now. Because it's had enough time. No, you know, still don't quite get that? Okay. Don't worry about it. These two just don't go together. <laughs> okay? You can work on that in your spare time. Non-dependent. You can read books like Scientific Creationism by Henry Morris. Things like that. Okay? Non-dependent material. Even We're going to postulate it because there are, people, there are people who do worship this kind of stuff. Non-dependent material and impersonal. Very common in the Western world. Non-dependent material, but impersonal. No, that would be finite. No, impersonal. That's exactly it, but what is it? What is it that the person is worshipping? I was talking about it, but what is it that the person's worshipping? Huh? No, that would be dependent, you see. No, that's dependent. It's not a non-dependent thing. They're postulating that this thing, very big thing, has always existed. The universe, the universe, that the matter and energy that the universe is made out of has always existed. But they say it's a non-dependent system, you see. They say that it's infinite. That the universe is infinite or that it has always existed. But it is, all it is, is matter and energy in motion. 
and only chance operates within it. So it is impersonal. See, it's just a matter of energy. And then what you have to do, what you have to do is deny the personality of man. There can't be real personality that has come out of this impersonal system because only chance operates within it. So you have to deny the personality of man. That is what we call naturalism. Hello. Come on. Come out, come out. Yes, I'll use another one for a second. Just need to put the lid back on for a while and get it wet. Okay. You a better point? Yes. So then, let's keep that on there. The non-dependent material Non-dependent, you with me? Non-dependent, material, personal. Now, this one's really sneaky. There are very, very few groups, I can actually only think of one, presently, that worship something like this. Hmm? Now, that... No, the, the Krishna wouldn't fit in that, because it would be immaterial. Uh, no. Because either as a person or as a philosophy, and then that would put him over here. No. That's just, it basically Islam. Perverted Islam. Hmm? No, that's over here, you see. It's immaterial, impersonal. This is very sneaky, see. It's material, it's personal, but non-dependent. No, see, he's dependent. He's a material material being. I, I'm not really that familiar with it that they, I, you know, as far as I know, he's a person. As far as reality is concerned, he's a person. They can say what they want. But there is a, there is a group that does believe this kind of thing. Who is it that believes that God is a six-foot-tall man that lives on a star called Kalab in the middle of the universe? Huh? The Mormons. You didn't know that, did you? God is a six foot tall or six foot six or something like that. Tall man who lives on a star called Kalab in the middle of the universe. K-E-L-O-B, I think they spell it. Isn't that interesting? So there is a group that believes in that. Non-dependent, material, personal. See, they've got the body of the Son and the body of the Father, and those are two separate things. Problem with that philosophically is, if you have the body of the Son and the body of the Father, there must be some kind of system behind that that will join the two together. In other words, there's some kind of system beyond that that joins the two together. And really, the only thing that can, that can uh, sustain that is this one over here. That is, that they basically believe in naturalism. That, that really what God is, is everything that is. Okay. Anyway, we won't get into that one. So let's take a non-dependent, we're getting close here, non-dependent, immaterial, impersonal. Hmm? Pantheists, or basically the, the, your Eastern religions, the idea that God is an infinite, impersonal life force. 
something like that. And what what was that, uh, sister? I don't know your name. Allah. Um, yes, yes, and no, because it, it's actually both of these. Because Allah is um, is said to have personal qualities, but they actually live as if God is as if Allah is impersonal. You see. Because God is personal, and they talk about the mercy of God and things like that, but um, God is also impersonal in the sense that it's a, a system of fate, that whatever happens, happens, and you know it must have been the will of Allah, inshallah, and so forth. So it's, it sort of goes back and forth between these two, and that's why the uh, uh, Islamic people have trouble having a relationship with God, is because his character or nature is fluctuating, and they, they're never secure in knowing what God is like. See? And so they have to be afraid of God. Okay? So the, uh, we have the Eastern religions here, or what is commonly called monism. Yeah, monism. God is an infinite, impersonal life force behind everything that is. Okay? And the universe is simply a manifestation of some kind of a, re or reflection of, or emanation of that, that God, but the universe is not really real. As we experience it, it's, that's simply an illusion. And we have to be enlightened to find out that actually everything is God. Okay, I'm just giving you some of their doctrine. Now, and then we have the non-dependent, immaterial, and personal, right? And his name is Yahweh. Seems rather refreshing after all those other things, isn't it? The non-dependent, immaterial, and personal. His name is Yahweh. In the Old Testament, we had Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh, or the angel of the Lord, as it is commonly translated. The messenger of Yahweh, who became Jesus in the New Testament, was incarnated as Jesus. And then the spirit of Yahweh, who is called the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So we do have the Trinity in the Old Testament. But. Okay, so we are going to talk about, the this morning, we're going to be talking about the nature and the character of God. And we need to, first of all, establish the difference between those two. The difference between those two. The nature and the character of God. The nature of God, or God's natural attributes. Have I got this back again? No, 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 almost. Let's use green. We have natural attributes. I'm going to erase the rest of this here. Have you got this now? We have natural attributes and moral attributes. The word attribute means characteristic, quality. Characteristic or quality. So an attribute means what? Come now. Characteristic or quality. And then you've got moral attributes or characteristics or qualities. A natural attribute is an attribute that a being has just because it is that being. Part of its nature. A at natural attribute is an attribute that a being has just because it is that being. One of my natural attributes is black hair. It's because I happen to be Mike Sia. 
Okay, now most of them are black. There are a few of them that are gray. You can see it there. There are some of them that are gray, but most of them are black. So that is a natural attribute of Mike Saya, or brown eyes, dark brown eyes. The natural natural attribute of Mike Saya. Some of you have natural attributes of blonde hair and blue eyes. Yes. Okay. Those are, that's, that's a natural attribute. You also have a natural attribute of a physical body. That's a natural attribute of a human being. Okay. A moral attribute is a quality that a being has because the being chooses to have it, such as kindness, gentleness, love, patience, wisdom, holiness. Okay? Moral attributes are those qualities or characteristics that a being has because the being chooses to have them. They are personal attributes. Not personality, but personal attributes, because the being is a personal moral being. Okay? Moral attributes. Now, when I use the word moral, I mean, I'm talking about choice. When I say a moral being, I do not mean as opposed to immoral, but as opposed to amoral, such as this thing right here is amoral. It does not have the ability to choose. Right? Whereas a moral being is like, you see, like Mike Saya. I can choose. And so a moral being is a being that has choice. It's not opposed. It doesn't mean a holy being necessarily. The devil is a moral being, but he is not a holy being. See the difference? Some people think sometimes that I'm saying a moral being is a being that is, is, has uh, good qualities. It's not necessarily that way. Okay. Hi. <laughs> okay. So then, natural attributes, uh, we, what we commonly do is we get natural attributes and moral attributes mixed up. Since the time of about the third, the fourth century, since about the time of the fourth century in Christianity, we have had, those of you who know a little church history know who I'm talking about, we have had the um, natural attributes of God and the moral attributes of God and of man, natural attributes of man and moral attributes of man, squashed together in our theology and have been struggling with that ever since. And so we need to get it clear in our heads what the difference is here, the difference between a natural attribute and a moral attribute. Let me ask a question. This will show you how you read your Bible. The statement, the statement, God is, which one shall I use? God is spirit. Is that a statement about God's natural attributes or moral? Okay, natural, that's fairly simple. Okay, God is love. Okay, that's moral. Now, you'd be surprised how many people, you probably a few of you thought that it was natural. Because it says God is love, what some people do is just because it makes the poetic statement in a very strong form, God is love, what they do with that is they say that that's part of his being. Okay? But if it were part of God's being to be love and not something that he chooses to do towards us, there would be no praiseworthiness to love. It would be like saying, if we had a plant in here, which, oh, yes, we do. Ah, good. Need a few more. Okay. Um, it'd be like saying to this plant, plant, thank you so much for being green. See? See? I mean, did the plant choose to be green? No, that's part of its natural attribute, you see. Plant, thank you so much for being green. It would be the same thing to say to God, God, thank you that you're loving. 
if it were part of his natural attributes. There would be no praiseworthiness to it. But we understand, both intuitively, and I believe we can show it from the scripture, that there is praiseworthiness to love. You understand what I mean by praiseworthiness? God is worthy, he's worthy to receive praise because of his love. You understand that? He's worthy to have that kind of a response in us. Whereas the, the idea that God is spirit, you don't say, thank you God that you're a spirit. Because you know, he didn't have any choice in that, that's just what he is. You see? But we say, thank you God that you're loving and kind and gentle. Okay? We can say, thank you God that you have created. Because that's still something that he chose to do. So it's only those things that he chooses to do that we get a response out of us that he is praiseworthy for that. You understand the difference? If it were part of God's natural attributes, there would be no praiseworthiness because it's not something that he would choose to do. Okay, how about the statement... This is going to show how you read your Bibles. How about the statement, God is light? What is it? One said natural? Huh? Some said moral? What is it? What is it? No, it's not both. It can't be both. Oh, yes, it's definitely, definitely an analogy. But the question is, what does that analogy mean in the Bible? 